everybody, and welcome to Mrs. D's Storytime. We are reading the book, Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story, and it is by Patricia Sanjin, with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. And we are on Chapter 8, Up to the Mountains. In the end, when the time came for me to say goodbye to Farnham and take up residence in the mountain time, I did not go alone. Evelyn Pike, my former English teacher and lifelong friend, traveled out and came with me. We arrived on a March evening and slept at the little Spanish hotel. My house above the inn had been taken by someone else, and we had to start our house hunting all over again. It was rather a blow, but the words, God having provided some better thing, came to me clearly, and we spent the first day looking for it. Muhammad was full of enthusiasm. I think that we saw some four or five houses in all. The first was depressing. It was down a sort of drain, had no windows whatever. The numerous Spanish population who lived on either side of the drain were loud in their welcome, but I thought not. We went to look at a second house, but the key had been lost, and so we gazed through the keyhole into a black void. Muhammad thought we were being a little hard to please. He obviously considered my liking for windows unnatural. The third house was too tiny, the fourth too expensive. The fifth appeared to be the better thing that God had provided, and we found it in the evening. We climbed a narrow staircase which led to the two monastic little rooms with uneven whitewashed walls and barred windows, but the stairway led to the roof. The moment I saw the view from the paraplete, I decided to take the house. It overlooked the marketplace, and by sunset light, the sellers were packing up their stalls and loading their donkeys. Two storks sailed overhead, each alighting on one leg on the ivied ramparts of the old fort. Just beyond it, the little houses rose up, one behind the other, tier upon tier of orange-lichened roofs against the rock of the mountain. The colors in that last light were indescribable. Vivid oranges, pinks, soft browns, grays, while here and there a glimmering white mosque towering up and cast its long shadow over the town. Evelyn, who was staying for two or three weeks, and I collected some second-hand mattresses, a low round table, a cupboard, and settled in fairly comfortably. But we soon discovered that there were certain disadvantages. In heavy rain, the water poured down the roof stairs, and twice coming in from visits in those first few weeks of that wet march, I was met by my saucepan floating across the floor like a boat, and I spent hours up to my ankles coping with the floods. Cats tended to fall down the open area of the roof and die on my premises while I was away. Bugs pattered from the rafters of the attic, and I went to buy insect powder. There were several customers in the shop, and they were most sympathetic and eager to show me the whole collection. This is for the bugs on the roof, they said, and this is for the bugs in your bed, and this is for the ones on your body and your clothes. They seemed surprised that I failed to buy the whole lot, and I later discovered that I should have done so. But Evelyn had to leave, and the first night alone in that little whitewashed house was one I shall always remember. My door was strong and well-bolted, but I dreaded being left to sleep alone in the middle of that Muslim city. I got ready for bed and opened daily light, and the words might have been written in gold. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Least any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. Suddenly there was no fear, and there was 
never any unfriendly disturbance by night. The promise held across the years. The first two or three months were lonely. Barnum had gone to England and visitors were scarce. Apart from Muhammad's family and one other household whose daughter had been in the hospital, the town was suspicious. Except for a few Spanish women married to Moroccans, no foreigner had ever lived inside the city walls, although there was a flourishing Spanish colony outside. I studied Arabic hour after hour and tried to talk to Muhammad's mother while she taught me to tease sheep's wool or to Zora while she got the distilled scent from roses and orange blossoms. But I was not really unhappy. The mountains and valleys outside the town foamed with blossom and irises and poppies and marigolds, marls and, and crimson dwarf flowers made bright carpets on the fields. I started to reread the old missionary biographies, among them Paget Wilkes of Japan, and one sentence struck me very forcibly. Power is a dangerous weapon. Our God is a jealous God, and he will not entrust it to anyone who is not wholly sanctified. It was a time of learning and growing and discovering what the simple presence of Jesus could mean when there was no other companionship and no one else could talk English. Also, somewhere during those months, the lost manuscripts of Treasures in Snow turned up. It had been found in a phone booth and miraculously recognized and returned through several stages to my mother. I finished writing it, reliving in thought the idyllic years in Switzerland with all its happy memories. So on the whole, the promise again held true. The solitary place shall be glad for them. Just outside the town lived Mrs. Volks and Dallas from the Emmanuel Mission. To them, I sped joyfully on Sunday for our dinner of fried eggs and chips. We did not meet during the week at first, for we did not wish the town to think of us as in league. But that Sunday fellowship was some of the sweetest I've ever known. Miss Volks was a, a choir leader and taught us cantatas and anthems, conducting the two of us in a living room as though we had been at least 50 strong in music hall. I counted the days till Sunday. Then in the evenings, the little boys started coming. Many of them had been turned out of their homes because there were not enough food to feed the increasing family. By ten years old, they were considered capable of scrounging for themselves. They roamed the town in bands begging or stealing, and some went home at night, and some who came from villages slept on the steps of the mosque. One came to the door begging bread, and I gave him some. The word went round, and the next night at dusk I had six or seven eager, bright-eyed little boys knocking on the door. They assured me they were all orphans, homeless and starving, and I let them in and gave them bread and molasses. Never having tasted molasses before, they were ecstatic. They crouched round the low table, licking all ten fingers, and gazed around the room in search of something to steal. I told them the story of the Good Shepherd in faltering Arabic and showed them a picture. They laughed delightfully, and when they left, they blessed my ancestors and wished me peace. A spoon and a piece of soap had disappeared. But the boys were so shocked and offended when I mentioned to them on the next evening that I finished up feeling almost ashamed of myself. Night after night they came, and I learned how to make bean mush and spice lentils and look after my property. <laughs> as soon as they had finished eating and licked their fingers clean, they would look up with me with angelic countenance and ask for a story. But the teachers in the mosque were getting suspicious. The boys were questioned and forbidden to come, and I wondered what had happened. They stayed away for three or four nights, but they missed their supper and decided to risk it. There was a sharp knock on the door one night, and I opened to find an apparently empty street. 
Then I was nearly bowled over by the rush of flying little bodies hurling themselves from hidden doorways into my passage, and the door was blocked behind them. They grinned up at me and supped on bread and black olives because I had not been expecting them, but they all seemed delighted to be back, and I, unaware of what had happened, was delighted to see them. It was quite dark when they left. But as soon as they reached the street, pandemonium broke out. Men were lying in wait with great sticks, and the children who failed to dodge and escape were cruelly beaten. Return was impossible, so they decided to regain the favor of the other side by shouting names at me and throwing stones. A dead cat appeared on my doorstep, and our happy evenings seemed all forgotten. Except for one. It was nearly midnight a few nights later when I heard a knock on the door. I got up and looked out the window and saw a small boy standing under the street lamp, beckoning urgently. I went down and opened, and he pushed in past me and bolted the door behind me, and then he kissed my hand and bowed to the picture of the wall of Jesus blessing the children, led me upstairs and set us both down. His expression was joyful and triumphant. Tonight he was alone, and he did not need to pretend to be a pitiful orphan or a ripe saint. He was just a happy little boy who had found a friend. The others won't come again, he announced, but I will come every night. Now tell me a story and give me some bread. I tried to discourage him, but he was immune to discouragement. Night after night he turned up, usually waking me from sleep. Then one evening he arrived, obviously excited, and invited me to go with him the next day and visit his mother. Your mother, I explained? I thought you were an orphan. He waved that remark aside as though unworthy of notice and promised to fetch me at two o'clock the next day. He arrived on the dot and set off ahead of me. It would not do to be seen consorting publicly, so I followed fast up the narrow cobbled streets to the poorer part of the town. He stepped inside a door and I went in after him, just in time to see legs disappearing up a rickety ladder leading to a loft. Nimble as a squirrel, he ascended, and I started to climb clumsily and anxiously. I heard him announce, She's come. Gasp and giggles and general panic. I realized that none of them had believed him or expected for a moment that I would come. And as my strange pale face and blonde hair appeared at the floor level, there was a second stunned silence and then peals of laughter. I laughed too and climbed onto the loft and sat down. There was nothing else to do. Hamad was distinctly put out. This was not what he had planned. At ten years old, he had the right to order his womenfolk about and he commanded his mother to make tea. She hastened to obey him and blew out the charcoals, swallowing down her mirth, then frantic searching and whispering and arguing as they realized that there was no sugar. However, it was clear from the oily substance in the clay bowl that they had just been about to have their dinner, so I suggested we eat together. They hesitated. Did Europeans eat bean mush? Hamad assured them that I did, and we gathered round with a piece of bread apiece, and scooped up from the central bowl. I was hungry and enjoyed it, for such is their skill with herbs and spices that even the food of the very poor tastes delicious. And soon their shyness melted, and they plied me with questions. How often did I wash? How much rent did I pay? How old was I? Why was I not married? We were getting on quite well when Hamad intervened. Too much noise, he said. Now she will tell you a story, the one about the lost sheep. Inquisitive neighbors were climbing the ladder and the loft was beginning to fill up. I did my best, for the women are not as sharp-witted as little boys and they were quite unused to my accent. All I could see on their faces were open amusement or blank bewilderment. They simply did not know what I was talking about. 
I faltered miserably, and Haman came to the rescue at once. He rose to his full, small height. See, he said, I will tell you the story of the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and lost one. He stooped and absorbed in counting an imaginary flock. So he took his lantern and went to the mountain and sought and sought. He was roaming the room and shading his eyes and lifting his imaginary lantern high in the air. Listen, he hears it cry. He crouches in a quarter, bleeding pitifully, and the wolf is just about to eat it. But the shepherd's not afraid. He rescues it and lays it on his shoulders joyfully. The little crowd watched, fascinated and silent. As Haman toiled the length of the attic, his shoulders bowed beneath his burden and his hands raised to hold his sheep. Near the doorway he paused, lifting his head and began beckoning and calling, Come, my friends, come, my neighbors, I have found my lost sheep. Let us rejoice and have a great feast. The audience was riveted, and as he finished, they laughed and applauded. And then Haman turned to me. Now tell him what he means, he says. I tried faultingly enough, but their interest had waned with the end of the story. No one was listening, unless it was Haman's sister's little girl, Tamu, who peeked from behind her mother and smiled shyly. I smiled back and had a strange feeling that here was some new beginning. Bring that little girl to me, I said on impulse. I will teach her to read and knit. I said goodbye and went cautiously out backwards. The latter was really most perilous, but I walked home thinking long thoughts into the future. One day, men, women, and children would turn to Christ through that vivid, gifted drama and preaching of their own people. It was our job to find them and to train them. Uh, I love you. I'm praying for you. And tomorrow we'll do chapter 9, which is First Context. Bye-bye.